More Than Optics podcast with Jayshree and Babin. Hi, and thank you for joining us on this episode of More Than Optics. Uh, Jayshree and I are looking to showcase some of the amazing individuals that are in the optical industry and are pursuing some exciting passions and occupations and interests outside of the industry. We've had individuals who have explored so many exciting avenues outside of optics, and we hope we can inspire you to move out of your comfort zone, try something new and to follow your dreams. I'm delighted to introduce Priya Amlani today, who's also a behavioral optometrist, and she's been doing some amazing work helping children with anxiety. So thank you for being with us, Priya. Thank you for having me. Welcome, Priya. I hope you're well, and uh, we've caught you on a good on a good session today. Um, First, we're going to start kick off straight away with some questions, okay? So what do you do? How long have you been qualified? And where did you study? So we're talking optics first and then the other stuff. I qualified from UMIST in 2000. You're putting me on the spot here now. It's such a long time ago. Yeah, uh, yeah. and I worked. I started as a pre-reg in an independent practice, then worked in Specsavers, Dolan and Aitchinson, you know, became a local, worked at Hillingdon Hospital for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And in between all that I did, all my vision aid overseas and trips to India with other private organizations and camps. And then alongside, I started doing this coaching work side by side. And in 2018, I decided to take a little break from optics for three months, November 2018. Mm-hmm. I'm still on that break, let's say that. <laughs> so I still keep up with my CET and optics is very close to me, but I've not gone back since 2018, November. Okay. And what about the other stuff then? You're doing coaching. It's this specific type of coaching, right? Yeah. So I've trained as an NLP master practitioner. So I've done NLP, which stands for Neuro Linguistic Programming. I've done Timeline Therapy and Hypnosis. And then since then, I've just kept adding to my portfolio uh, of education because I love learning. And I found that as a locum, when you're driving to far places, that time was well spent studying. So I actually studied for myself. But while I was working with the children in the pediatric clinic and doing the Law Vision Aid Clinic at Hillingdon Hospital, I realized I was using a lot of my NLP techniques to calm the children down and, you know, um, counsel the people with their loss and stuff. And I thought, wouldn't it be lovely to have the skills as a child before, because I suffered from anxiety myself as a child. And I thought, oh, I could start a side business. So it started with friends and family, and then I started a side business. I then did some more training um, and got a license for NLP for kids. So it's a very specific license where you learn it for children and that's how it started so more and more of my clientele was about anxiety rather than general coaching but i get all the spectrum from bullying confidence all the way to self-harm so i see the whole spectrum of things and then obviously i did more training that related to that and i then realized it wasn't always child specific there was family issues and I sit at the parenting team at Neesden Temple, the Swaminan Temple on the national parenting team. Mm-hmm. And then we took the opportunity to go and do more training. So I did a parenting course called Strengthening Families, Strengthening Communities, which is a council course recognized throughout the UK, the evidence-based parenting program. Mm-hmm. So just one thing led to another, and that's how I ended up here. And in between, I did more you know, I was doing my behavioral optometry, 
and that really was resonating so i could see children in my coaching practice and i think oh my god they need to see a behavioral optometrist but likewise i'd see people with issues with tracking and convergence and accommodation issues and i think okay there's an underlying anxiety here and they need to have help elsewhere as well so i think it just went hand in hand for me for a long time okay there's a, a very much an overlap between what, what, what I do. I mean, I, well, I'm doing particularly the visual stuff, but I understand that some of these problems can cause anxiety and other issues, particularly emotional issues that are outside of what we would normally see in a, in a consulting room. And, and often you need to really address those difficulties. And it, it's great that you've, you've found kind of a way to help people with those things. And yeah, you, uh, I mean, so you finally did a little bit and then you realize actually, you know what, it would help you to do more. Is, is that how you kind of worked your way along it? That's right. And as I was doing my coaching, I could see it was very fulfilling. I could pick my own times, you know, on my day off. I didn't have to work a whole locum day. You know, I could have pick and choose a couple of hours where I'd coach. But I was seeing really good um, results. It was very satisfying. And the fact that I could be my own boss, you know, even as a locum, you're on your your own boss, but you still have to do your nine to five and things like that. And they start giving me a freedom to be able to look after my elderly parents because I was in regular locum work, but my mom went into hospital. She had a knee surgery. So I had this to fall on as an income because it was always on the side. Mm. And then I could, I'd started building it slowly. Optics was the main bread and butter and slowly I was building this on the side. But when my mom was not well, it gave me the freedom to say, okay, I don't need to locum and I can coach around the caring times and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But talking about optics and the coaching regards retained reflexes, as we were talking about from behavioral optometry, it's really interesting. I had a little child I was working with, with severe anxiety fears, and she was applying everything mentally, everything mentally, but she was just not making the changes. Mm. And I knew there was something else. My gut was saying there may be something like retained reflexes, but I didn't want to bring that into my coaching. So I spoke to a psychotherapist mm -hmm. and I spoke to the psychotherapist and she goes, you're a behavioral optometrist. Why don't you do some reflex work? Why don't you test that? And I said, okay, but how can I mix it? And she goes, no, you can. Retained reflexes is a different approach. Go have a look. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, she did have the moral reflex and, you know, so that's what got me more curious about retained reflexes and learning more. So it complemented each other for a long time. So all the learning I was doing for rhythmic movement training was also helping my behavioral optometry. And it just so happened I needed a career break uh -huh. for myself in 2018. But then I had my business to follow on very easily. Yeah. Okay. So for the people that are not into behavioral optometry, and obviously you two are talking a language here which may not always be that conversant to, to say everybody listening just gives a little bit more background Priya or Babin or both whichever one wants to go first on those two terms and how that makes a difference so you're saying you've got a person with a certain difficulty what have you but where does that tie and how would the average optometrist refer somebody to you know or recognize that I don't know if Babin wants to take this but from my perspective I was already locuming in a practice where there was a behavioral optometrist I worked for Paul Adler mm. and um, he coached me and trained me to listen out for things I'd seen previous records so you're looking for accommodation convergence insufficiencies listening to symptoms in between right. rather than just looking at a person and saying you see six six 
that's it you know that's fine there can't be any problems your vision's good really yeah. read between the symptoms why have they come the teachers are concerned about their reading they're mm. not being able to copy from the board mm. and then i would say okay you might want to see a behavioral optometrist or here's that leaflet there's this criteria see if any of them resonate and if they do we'll book you in but then I got curious because I wanted to learn about it and I started checking for convergence thoroughly rather than the quick way we do it at a traditional 20 minute testing and you know you take time checking these things and when you do you do pick up that actually no there is an issue and I got curious about behavioral optometry I will be honest I was very skeptical about it having worked in the orthoptics department mm -hmm. myself because you know there are people who believe in it completely and there are people who don't but when I had the experience to speak to parents and that was the beauty of working at Paul Adler's to speak to parents firsthand whose children had had this and they were just coming for routine eye tests and they were saying how much difference it had made to the children you know in terms of school writing bit dyslexia you know dyspraxia things like that I knew there was something else in optometry I could do there was suddenly light you know that there's a you know with optometry we feel like we've reached the peak there's no more progressing but I feel like oh I can do something else because I said, I said before, I love studying, I love learning. So, right, that's I, a good uh, summary. No, I, 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 I think you're completely right. There's so many elements there that, but behavioral optometry kind of explains exactly what's going on. And there is a, I think, a, a, there's a difficulty with with kind of having an understanding of what we do with behavioral optometry and exactly how important the visual system is to everything and how we we move our bodies how we learn how we how we read all of those things all go through the visual system and and i think behavioral optometry gives us that that understanding um and and i think you're, the, the really important thing you, know, you talk about the curiosity and i think that that that's so important that that's often lost that, that actually you're curious about what's going on and i mean my, my journey with behavioral optometry started about 15 years ago i had a, a child who came to see me who couldn't see the board well they came they came complaining they couldn't see the board but the vision was 6665 even um unaided so this child's come to see me saying that they can't see the board but actually they they can see perfectly so and and they had uh, you know plus 025 kind of an R, a very very minimal rx a minimal prescription mm. so then i started questioning a little bit further i was like okay so, so so how long does it last for this blurry vision and they're like oh it lasts for for a few seconds and then suddenly it becomes clear and then actually then you start looking into it and you realize actually this this child was having trouble uh with their accommodation when they're focusing uh, looking down at the book and then focusing on the board that's where there was suddenly a lag and actually there's you start looking into the, the what's happening and then you, you discover actually that there's a lot more to the visual system than being able to read read the, the, the bottom line of the chart so and then i think it's having that curiosity and asking those questions that hang on why is this why is this happening and that leads you onto a, a kind of almost a, a rabbit hole of information. In fact, the, the more I learn about behavioral optometry, that actually the routine optometry becomes, uh, you know, it's, it's a very small part of, of, of what happens to, to people's eyes and what happens with their visual system. Yeah, so it's a, it's a much more holistic approach, I suppose. You know, we we, we are slightly obsessed with our VAs and, and what, what people yeah. can see on the chart. And really, oh, it's, it's not what you see centrally, it's what you see around you, it's how you function in the world, right? And, yes. and what your visual, what your vision is actually doing in terms of processing the whole thing. So it's a more holistic approach by the sounds of things. And if you are that optometrist or that dispensing optician, where the, where the mum keeps saying, "Well, I've been, you know, here, 
and they said his vision's fine. And I've been there and they said his vision's fine, but he keeps telling me his vision isn't fine. So, you know, is he malingering or is he not making sense or what's going on? You know, because you know, parents are parents, right? They're thinking, well, come on, get on with it. Is it that he wants a pair of glasses or is it that something else is going on? So, you know, yeah, that, that little bit of curiosity to actually figure out, go that little bit deeper and peel the onion a little bit further to say, okay, what, you know, where's the core of this coming from and where, where are we actually you know, moving to? Uh, would be would be a good way to go sort of thing and so in terms of referring would you refer to a behavioral optometrist what would you do or refer to some prior for you how, how does the referral work for you because obviously yours is a slightly different way of doing it yeah, so, um, just literally last week I've had somebody who's come and they were actually coming to me for um, anger issues and the child was playing up in the evening after school they really struggled to hold it all in all day long and they just thought he's playing up at home but when I started digging deeper in the questions, I realized this isn't him putting it on. There's something going on underneath. And then I asked some basic questions, which I do for retained reflex work. Because remember, as an anxiety specialist, I'm not an optometrist, but I have the hat on. So I talked about and I started picking up ideas that these retained reflexes. So the first thing I said is I suggest I, I would suggest you go and have your eyes tested and please make sure they check you for convergence um, because there were things they were singing out to me and when you come for your second visit let me know and they did come for the second visit unfortunately they were told there was no convergence issue i quickly checked there was a convergence issue so it's a point now i've started having that conversation with the parent about okay so there are behavioral optometrists out there these are the roots and they um, left them with that option and then i can reach out to a behavioral optometrist and say i have a client can you see them or i can just give them the name of a couple in the area and mom will make a decision on where to go from there but then right. i'll still carry on doing my work from the anger and the retained reflex work knowing that there's a support system for the vision and eyes but then you pick up things about hearing or processing, or you think this child might need an assessment for ADHD or, a, you know, and the beauty of having done behavioral optometry and seeing those reports when they come and you have to read all those reports from the educational psychologist has given me the extra experience to work with children in my mm. private practice because normal coaches don't come across that you know whereas i've had the benefit of seeing all those reports from educational psychologists and the school reports because they all bring that to your behavioral optometry session mm. interesting yeah. can i also just for just clarify for, for people listening who don't know about retained reflexes yeah, um yeah. so we all have uh our inbuilt reflexes that drive normal development um from babies for example when, when you're being born our head has to, and body has to twist down the, the birth canal to be born so there's an inbuilt reflex as you as you had turns the body twists in order to for you, for you to be born so there's a whole host of these reflexes now sometimes some of these reflexes get retained or they don't get fully integrated so you, you then start getting some in, either involuntary movements going on or some next stage of the development um, may be hindered in a particular way which can mm -hmm. then have a knock-on effect with the whole system it can affect balance it can affect coordination it can affect emotional regulation um, it could be affecting um, areas of vision or the visual system how we move our head and neck how we converge uh, there's a whole whole things that a whole host of things that, that, that it can affect so uh, one of the things we look at when when children have some of these difficulties especially when there's a, there's a host of difficulties we'll have a look at some of these developmental milestones and see 
how they've progressed and, and these kind of reflexes, the inbuilt reflexes to drive development will push them along and have them integrated and make sure that the child goes through their, their normal developmental cycle. And that makes a huge difference. You know, they'll, they'll start uh, uh, performing better, they're moving better, their, their eyes will start working better. Mm, okay, so that's why there's sometimes quite a detailed uh, questionnaire that, that's given out, isn't it, in terms of in terms of that side of things. Sometimes you guys give out quite a detailed questionnaire as to, you know, uh, about child and the difficulties that they're having and, you know, were they born prematurely, et cetera, et cetera, and stuff like that, yeah, I think. Yeah, even, even, even delivery, you know, if it's a, a C-section, you may be more likely to have some of these difficulties or, or if it was a traumatic delivery, then, yeah. then sometimes it can it means some of these reflexes can end up being retained. And we won't know until later, you know, when, they, when they're, they're babies, if they're not doing some things, but you, you can't force them but as they become, uh, as they start growing, becoming older, you start seeing some of these difficulties. And with the lockdown, Priya, what's happened with the lockdown for you then? What's been the biggest surprise in the lockdown uh, uh, that you found in terms of your work and what's been going on? So the lockdown uh, for me was a huge learning curve, but having my coaching business was a blessing in disguise, huge blessing in disguise, because the demand for my work went up very quickly so I didn't have to worry about locum work or putting myself out as I said earlier I'm a carer for my parents because my dad was shielding so I didn't have to worry if I was locuming that I'd be exposing myself so the fact that I had the coaching business was great the first few weeks went down because I was used to just doing face-to-face -face work I always advocated face-to-face -face work but I had a couple of clients and they said, look, we'd be happy to go online. And as soon as I went out of my own comfort zone and went online, we adapted, we managed, we found ways. Initially, I was trying things, but you find amazing tools and techniques. You know, you can share videos and audios and there's other ways to keep a child's concentration. Work got very, very busy. The anxiety kicked in, but more than the anxiety, there was a, in the beginning, there was a whole area of parents who were struggling to be teachers and parents because mm. everybody, you know, they thought they have to homeschool, which means they have to be teachers, they have to be parents, they have to be working. So parents were under a lot of stress themselves. Oh, yeah. So in the beginning, I had a lot of clients like that where we had parents I had to work with and help them understand it's okay, it's not the end of the world, you know, your child will catch up, manage their anxieties, because parents' anxieties were, my child is missing out on school, oh my god, they'll not get their GCSE, means they can't get into Oxford or Cambridge, you know, like, they can't do the optometry to give, they don't get the grades, you know, because they're such high achievers. There was that element. There were the younger ones whose parents was like, but my child doesn't listen to me, and I didn't realise they were so behind in school, and I knew more and there was all this different anxieties. It wasn't there was something just I said right at, right at the beginning of the lockdown is, is that um, parents realized it wasn't the teacher that was the problem. And there was things where a lot of the children needed help that the parents only realized actually this is the areas where they had been struggling. But I also think parents value teachers more now and realize oh, that, yeah, yeah. yeah. They do a but hard also, job. Yeah, teachers do a hard job. And I think we also forget how teachers adapt their learning styles to a child. As a parent, yeah. you just teach a child in your learning style. So yeah. learning styles are like you can be visual, auditory, reading, writing, you know. And then they're trying to teach the child in a particular way and thinking, why do they listen to the teacher, not me? So yeah. being able to do single one-off sessions with parents like that was very helpful for parents as well. Um, I also set up some voluntary work. I have a 
Facebook group I set up just before lockdown to support parents and it took off in the lockdown where I would go and do a weekly Q&A session that was free of charge. Um, it was called, uh, it's still there, it's called Overcoming Anxiety and Positive Parenting. But I would just take questions because you know they don't need a full-blown paid session or everybody can afford it. So I did things like this in the lockdown. I learned how to do podcasts, I learned how to video. So I grew as a person, but mm -hmm. it did play on my mental health because my work went hugely busy, right? And then you felt an obligation to help people and you felt like, oh my God, I have to help them because that's my job and I was becoming my job and I burnt out and my health suffered and then I I took a pause and reflected and took my own learnings and got into gardening and I love it now and I do gardening on a regular basis so lockdown was interesting for everybody but I'm grateful like you know I I know that people who had separate businesses I know a couple of other optometrists who have businesses selling candles or whatever they were doing well they had that ticking over if they didn't have locum work or because mm. mm. yeah, if you were paid then you didn't get furloughed right like if you're a locum you suffered a lot no i think i think locums went through many a trauma many a trauma in in lockdown you know uh the support things like um you know just just the general stuff of you know being a locum trying to find work who's open who's not then trying to get the ppe where do they get tested? You know, people, all these, you know, the, 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 the regulations, what else was going on? Where are they earning money? You know, the, the pressures were massive. Um, and also trying to, you know, keep abreast of everything else that's going on at home. If you're homeschooling, if you, all, all the things you said, you know, um, were, were, were carrying on. In that sense, I think I do feel quite hard for locums because they, they went through a tough time. And, and the people that can that have supported locums in the lockdown are the people that are going to going to benefit because those are the people that are going to stick with them after aren't they really you know the locums remember who supported them right i'm sure they would they probably you know even if it's a reach out call to say hey jay Shree, how are you doing today i know that you know uh, it's been hard whatever we're just keeping track of the practice and saying you know we're not opening up just yet we're doing this we're doing that at least it, there's a connection you're talking to somebody about something rather than just sitting at home and festering and thinking well what do i do now you know so so it's been hard for locums generally i think um, in terms of lockdown but hopefully now they will they will be in a better situation the important thing I think is that as you said it's giving them an opportunity to reflect and look at what they're doing and try and find a new avenue try and look you know have time to be creative if they want to be creative have time to to look at what else they can do and maybe pursue that little thing that was you know in the back of their head and thinking you know what I always wanted to do this I always wanted to be an artist or I always wanted to be an estate agent or follow you know, forex trading or whatever it is and then this is the time that they had to do that that little chunk of time that allows them to follow that um you know that that avenue and that's part of what this is about really uh, you know more more than optics is trying to show showcase really optometrists dispensing opticians anybody in the optometrist uh, optometry sort of sector and see how diverse a range of individuals we have really that's that's the key thing i think i think that's really important and i think as optometrists we mustn't be embarrassed of having that side business. I went through a phase in the beginning where I felt I had to hide it from where I was locally okay. because they, okay. they feel like your mind's not in optics, but you can have both, right? So initially, the first few years, I did feel like I played it down. I wouldn't talk about it much. But when my own confidence grew and I knew there was nothing wrong I was doing, there was something to be proud about. 
it's okay it shows you can transfer skills from one area to another i could show how i have my own business and i can bring those ideas to your practice how have i made my website run how do i get my marketing done and then people see you in a different light and they respect mm -hmm initially and i can't speak as an employed person because i wasn't employed at that point but initially as a locum and even when i worked at the hospital there was a part of you you felt like you had to keep it low-key just in case they think you're not serious about optics should we call her more regularly touchwood i was lucky enough to have regular work but there is that fear and i think if we normalize this in optics it will be lovely. Then people don't have to choose optics or something else. If you become a coach, you don't have to put down optics. We have brought skills from optics into my coaching. The whole retail understanding has helped me in my coaching, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The customer service, bedside manners, how to approach, you know, when the door opens, how do we react? All these learnings have really helped. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I do find with optometry and, and that actually, especially when, when you're working for someone that, you know, you've got that you know, nine o'clock to six o'clock and, and that's it. It stays there. And it's not like other many occupations where you can take it home. You can't take the patients home. So it, you've got this time and opportunity to be able to explore stuff different to other other occupations as well. And you're absolutely right. They, they, those skills are so transferable. You know, you can transfer the optometry to the coaching, the coaching to the optometry, and both grow and both improve. Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think locums, to me, as a locum, when I was a locum, okay, the first things that the things they would ask me is, so Jay, what's going on out there? You know, I'm in my business 24-7. You know, I, I work in this one practice and that's it. So what's yeah. going on in the world outside? You know, tell me what's happening. What's new in products? What's, what's you know, what's new techniques? What new piece of kit have you seen that you I, I haven't got? You know, stuff like that. And locums bring a wealth of information and, and experience and, and, you know, knowledge. And that's the sort of thing that, that you know, that, that's why they invite you back, don't they? That's why they say, you know what, we'll have her back, actually, because she, she or he knows what he's talking about. That, so they do their functional you know, work really well. They're good with patients and all of that. But actually, they bring something else. They have another skill. Uh, and if you said, oh, actually, I do coaching, they might, oh, OK, well, tell me about that then, you know. So the important thing is that, it, like you both said, it adds to what you're doing. It doesn't detract and therefore... You should feel confident and comfortable enough to say it, like you say, Bria. And sometimes it will take time, you know, for you to be able to get to that level where you just think, you know what, I don't care. I'm just going to tell people because actually it's important. It adds to the business, mm. not doesn't take it away sort of thing, you know. Um, I think icebreaker in the testing room when behind closed doors, right? You know, you have these conversations because it's not while you're testing, you do talk about football or you talk about the weather or, but if you can have deeper conversations sometimes. I, I remember a GP I'd seen for many, many years. Um, she would come with a daughter. I'd seen her from like this child from about five years of age till she was about 15 or so, like because I was regular locoming. And um, I happened to say in one of the sessions, oh, I, I coach. And the daughter wasn't in the room. Mom just bust out crying. I'm thinking, oh, my God, what have I done here now, right? And she goes, oh, my God. She goes, can I tell you something about my daughter? I said, yeah. And she goes, as a GP, I missed that she was having eating disorders. And... The fact that she could then openly have that few minutes away from her family in that testing room and just felt better for it. We can make that difference, or I felt I could make that difference. But, you know, you might talk about art or you might talk about Zumba if you do Zumba classes, but 
those connections make a huge difference because we know our patients, the number of patients who are antidepressants or anxiety tablets or whatever. Yeah. That yeah. small conversation helps them a lot. I think that's the connection that keeps you to a practice, to be honest. It's about being, it's the emotional connection sometimes, the fact that you've gone above and beyond what you would require that person to do, and the fact that they know something that personal about you, and that the fact that you can touch on that if you see them again at some point, and they know that you know, and that you've remembered, you've taken time and energy to remember that. You know, if somebody says, oh, I'm going on holiday to Tenerife, and then two years later, you know, you go, oh, okay, and I remember last time you were going on holiday to Tenerife, they're like, blimey. Gosh, she's got good memory. The fact that you've written it down on your card in smart, tiny letters, you know, is, is by the by. But they just go, oh, you're good, aren't you? How do you know that then? You go, oh, I went to Tenerife that year. Ah, that's how you remember. Okay, fair yeah. enough. But things like that actually mean there's a connection. You know, you're not just in a, yeah. a set of eyes that come in and there you go, and 20 minutes testing, off you go, here's your prescription, there you go. You've got to be memorable, mm -hmm. haven't you? You've got to, and keep them memorable too, so that if they see you anytime, you know, you have some sort of, uh, connection with them in terms of some and, and what you said about GP that's an emotional connection she could be that open with you to say that right and mm. she's been probably may, maybe trying to say that for so many years to somebody but yeah. really hasn't had the opportunity to do so and then you, when, when you understand them as well you I mean you can help them in a much much deeper way from especially from the visual point of view and yeah. I mean as a coach as well you can you can help them in a way that that goes kind of above and beyond but it's I think making that connection and spending time with people to understand them and and yes yeah, so those small details I had, I had a patient today actually who, who came to see me before the pandemic and she said with her glasses she could see the view from her from her bedroom onto Alexandra Palace really really clearly but she couldn't read so well so I'd, I'd seen and, and today I I kind of I mentioned oh how's how's the view of Alexandra Palace and she's you know, she'll almost take it back and say oh yeah you remember that that one and those kind of things I think make that dramatic not just being a magical moment but just being a, a moment where you understand their vision as well as they do you know yeah, and it's a connection, like you say, it's a connection in that sense, isn't it? So, so how do you stay on top of everything, Priya? How do you stay on top of being a business owner, coaching, looking after your parents, all of that? How do you, uh, and all the other bits and bobs, the volunteers? Oh. <laughs> I'll be honest, it was very tough in the beginning. It was uh, a balance I had to learn. So initially, the way I worked was I knew I had to do so many locum days to pay for my office if I didn't have enough clients. And then it shifted to I needed to have so many clients to pay and then for the rent and, you know, so you... The business mind from the optics helped me with managing the finances. So I wasn't one of those people who just went with my heart and no head. I had the optics head of, okay, how do we balance things out? What's the, what profit do I need? You know, like how you calculate chair time. So I knew that for my coaching, which was great. And then I calculated backwards for me personally is like, okay, so what kind of lifestyle do I want? And how many clients do I want to see to be able to manage everything else? Initially, I was very flexible. I would offer clients anytime, you know, weekends. And then I thought, no, this is, I'm not practicing what I preach. So I changed a little bit of that. I stopped doing Saturdays. And then more recently this year, I've just gone to doing Tuesday to Friday, but bringing from optics, booking backward or booking forward. You know, we do that in optics, right? You book your diaries in a particular way. So I brought that. So I've learned to time block. So I have days where I know that that's my day um 
it is it is harder than being a locum for me as a business owner because i'm no longer i have to think about marketing i do have to think about um how to keep the clients coming how to keep my profile out there so you're having to think you don't switch off at six o'clock to be honest you can't leave it all and you but i've managed to separate my phone now i've put something called WhatsApp for business, which then can give them out of office replies. So I've set it up now slowly because I've been doing it 10 years so that I don't feel like I have to respond to every client straight away. They can wait. So knowing that there's enough competition, sorry, enough clients for everybody there really put me at ease. That mindset change was important. WhatsApp for business is a slightly different thing, isn't it? You're saying it's it's it's, it's right. So you can have your business profile in there. There's automatic responses. So if somebody messages you say, hi, hello, my name is X, Y, and Z. I wanted to be interested in you. It will respond and say, okay, I'm out of office. I work best and best between this time and this time. I'll call you back as soon as I get back to you. Because people don't want to email these days. They want to WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's really given me that freedom not to feel like I have to respond straight away. So I can go on holiday and leave my phone. Initially, I would take my my phone, had my work and my coaching and everything personal. But separating that really helped with the balance, giving myself time off, knowing that I have to be in a good place to give is so important. Because yeah. if I'm burnt out, if I'm tired, I can't give. And we know that, right, towards the end of the day in a practice, sometimes you're like, oh, I just hope it's a contact lens patient or an easy child, right? But if we were full, we were we were having our regular break, so you know you weren't pushed through your lunch, then you wouldn't be feeling like that at the end of a practice day. Mm. Um, so I've been able to put some of those things into practice for myself. That's good. So, yeah, so using tools as well as actually regulating what you're doing, as it were. Uh, to make sure that you're fit and well and functioning for all the clients that you see, which is something that, you know, sometimes I think we're not very good at doing really, or maybe our, our employers don't think about it in that way. Maybe that's the thing they don't, you know, they just want to see, you know, maybe the situation that, yeah, we've got, we've got a full clinic guys and there we go, let's get cracking and, uh, you know, have a good day. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, that is the, the kind of difference between having an employee and having your own business. Where do you add the, the business admin and the marketing into your day. Do you, do, you, do you schedule it in there or do you do your normal day and then add it on afterwards? How, how, how do you manage that? How do I do that now? Yeah. I actually have put it in my, um, so evening I've kept for me and my, mm. my husband, my family, but in the daytime, so Monday used to be my admin day, but that was my day off and admin. It didn't work for me. So now I have certain times in the diary, uh, like Tuesday morning, I have an hour or so for catching up on emails because I've not been in work from Friday till Tuesday. So I have those catch up time and then I'll have specific um, time blocks for marketing or social media. I do know I have to go on social media a few times a day because I respond to certain groups and comments. But I have a screen time on my phone. So if I've gone beyond, my phone will tell me we all have the option to set it. I've set it to say you over your screen time. I do it that way. I know which are my busiest slots and the quieter slots. So then I do the admin in between. So a lot of discipline is required. It's very difficult. Yeah. It is. It is very difficult. Yeah. And what, what's your main social media channels then? So my main social media channel, um, 
is Facebook. I have a page called I'm Learning Coaching. And like I said, I have this group. I have about 700 people in there called Overcoming Anxiety and Positive Parenting. I do things there. I, I post a lot. I comment on a lot of groups of parents where they're asking questions because I think Facebook has become a place where parents reach out because there's the function of anonymous now. So they mm -hmm. can question, ask about themselves or the children. So I, I have to go through threads like that. Um, so Facebook is my primary um, social media. I'm learning Instagram. So I'm still learning and growing with Instagram. But yeah, I, I am on all. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. But, yeah, it's, but it's difficult keeping ahead of everything, isn't it? You know, like you say, it's, it's difficult keeping your head above. I'm, I'm, I'm very much of the ilk, and, I, and and I could be wrong in this, you know, in terms of social media. But I like, I think to me, pick your channel, pick what's working for your business or working for you, and then stick to it and really go for it, really, and, and engage and take time to do the content and all that side of things. You know, that's the way I work for the simple reason that makes sense to me. Because to me, social media is a little bit like having a child. They need feeding regularly. They need regular maintenance. They need regular, you know, monitoring, yeah. if you like, to make sure that what's going on. And to do that well, you know, with three or, three or four different channels, I think it's quite hard. Unless, obviously, you've got the tools that can do all of that. And I'm sure there are tools out there. I'm not, I'm not you know, saying that there isn't sort of thing. But that's the way I do it. I don't know about you, Babin. Yeah, so, so I'll, I'll, I'll take maybe, maybe one, one step before then. It's just knowing who your audience is um, yeah. and, and also knowing your brand and understanding how your message resonates with your with your audience and then finding out where your audience are and and what I find particular audiences are using particular channels more than others so it's mm. kind of understanding which and, and I mean I, I'll, I'll use a few different ones based on the audience that that, that I want to reach but yes it, it's understanding the personality of each of each audience and of, of each channel I think is really important mm -hmm. and I think also having that freedom to know that you don't have to be everywhere so what you said is I initially went for everything because it's new you have this fear of missing out will I miss out on clients and then once you get comfortable you do realize that actually no this is what works for me this is where mm -hmm. I can be authentic and mm -hmm. speak the language because you have to speak the language of your target audience mm -hmm. and then you just focus on that and every so often you will have a glitch and you know with optics as well if there's another practice with your competition their social media is going up you think oh am i missing out but when you start getting comfortable and thinking no actually i'm being okay i'm reaching my goals keep my track on you know these are the only times i say really focus on what you're stop worrying about what others are doing because then you can be happy and then have the work-life balance because if you start doing what everybody else is doing and start looking at what every other competition is doing that's when you spiral into social media and mm -hmm. then get anxious and get worried and I'm not doing well and, you know, get insecure. And, and, and it's very like easy that. to on, on social media to have a lot of activity that's not very effective as well. It might look good. And, and, and there's a big problem with vanity metrics, I feel. Uh, with, with with social media um and it's knowing that actually there's a difference between a, a a vanity metric that where it looks good where you've got loads of followers or loads of activity but actually is it driving the people that you want to come to to help in your business so it's it, it uh, i think that there it's very easy to fall into those to, to those traps and and, and you're right you're, you're sticking to where what you want to know what works for you you understand your audience and you understand the way that you can help them and just you know if you concentrate on that that, that things will work very well and I think one thing I've learned, and I think I've never thought about it till now, 
but it would help optics is, is one thing I learned a few years ago, which was super useful, is you have silent watches. And I now do my research. When people call me, I say, where have you found me from? And they'll say Facebook, a particular group or whatever. Um, I found a lot on recommendation, right? But they've hardly liked my posts ever. These are people who watch you silently because they're worried about the Big Brother environment or other people seeing that you're liking their posts or my child might have a problem with their eyes. I don't want people to know or my child might have problems with anxiety. Yeah. You know, that there's that taboo or there's the protective nature of a parent. Yes. Yeah. So when yeah. I got my head round silent watches, that was amazing because suddenly my work's still ticking. I might only have five flags in a post. But I might have an inquiry from it. And there's some posts I've had thousand likes and no inquiries. Mm -hmm. So you have to, and when you get your head rounded, and these are things I've been able to learn and grow because of the second business, you know, uh, because when you in optics, unless you're a business owner, it's very much about testing as an optometrist and being in practice. But this gives you the option, you know, people want to have their own businesses, but they don't want to run a practice. Having a second job gives you that option to learn and grow. Absolutely. So what's driving you at the moment? What's the biggest area of research for you? What are you most curious about then? What's ticking your boxes at the moment in terms of research and you know what's going on in the world of optics and going on in the world of what you're doing? Right now, and this is for very personal reasons, my father's had um, reoccurrent cystoid myculopathy, you know, posterior uveitis and stuff. And we've had people mistake it as wet md and you know the consultants we were from one hospital to another and stuff and it's all linked to his inflammatory arthritis mm. and now we uh, my dad's being considered for a certain trial for medication so for me it's looking at that whole inflammatory connection for me so when i do a bit of reading around optics i will do that that's what i want to read up on so that's what's interesting me right now because it's very personal to me yeah. There must be advances, but because, as I said, I've not been in practice right now, currently. Um, so anything around children, I like, but this for me right now in optics. From a personal perspective, um, I've moved on a little bit from NLP now, and I am actually recently trained as an iHeart facilitator. And that states, uh, stands for Innate Health Education and Resilience Training. And it goes beyond just the mind-body connection, but understanding our mind as a psychological system from a very spiritual perspective, but they don't sell it as that, but understanding it as an intelligent system. So a lot of my um, time and energy right now is going into exploring that because I've seen some amazing results. I've had the opportunity to volunteer at a at Havelock Primary School in September last year in the last term so when mm -hmm. they were open um, and did two year six groups mm -hmm. so um, and the impact of having these things at school and the impact of teaching them about mental well-being at school so I'm looking at now how I love my one-to-one -one coaching but is there things we can do as mental health to prevent so more preventative for children rather than let's act when there's a problem so I mm -hmm. think my I'm working on those right now. Right. Sounds interesting. Yeah, Sounds that, interesting. That's really I important, like I think, yeah. just getting in before because when it when it's a problem, it it's obviously too late at that point. And and you're only gonna get some of the you know, you're gonna catch and put a net but not catch everybody as well, unless you walk 
go upstream saying catch the, the uh, uh, more of the roots of the problem okay quick fire questions now priya so short answers for these are you ready okay so what would your parents describe what you do for a living my mom just says nlp <laughs> Yeah, my dad how would she, say how does she explain nlp to, to she doesn't she doesn't explain she will just say she does nlp and then everybody will look at her my dad would say <laughs> she works with families and children she helps families and children okay cool that's good i like that people just look at her and go oh yeah okay fair enough nlp some that's people good. will ask her more and she's like here's a card here's a leaflet <laughs> <laughs> they're always the our best sales people our parents i love them <laughs> <laughs> What's the best compliment you have ever received? I don't know if you call that a compliment. It's one that touches, I still have the card here of a mom, I've kept it to date, is of a mom who said, um, you changed my daughter's life. Her daughter was self-harming and the GP and would not see her, didn't believe her. And they used changed my daughter's life. So it's not a compliment to me, but they worked hard, but that's one I still I still have oh, that I, card here in my office. I, I can like the compliment, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, would, amazing, amazing work, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's what you call life changing. So that, that's mm. a compliment, I would say. And finally, what is your favorite restaurant and what's your favorite dish that you would order? Current favorite restaurant is Mumbai Local. Mm -hmm. And I would always order paneer burji. Paneer? Burji, grated paneer oh, curry. Yeah. Ah, grated paneer curry. Okay, cool. And where is that restaurant based? So they have franchises, but our favourite franchise or uh, branch is the one on Stretchfield Foot Road, not far from Honeypot Lane. Okay, cool. Good stuff. Good stuff. They were my saviours, takeaway saviours in the lockdown when I was super busy. <laughs> ah, there you go. You see, this is it. We've discovered lots of new places in the yeah. lockdown that way, haven't we, really? Those people that pivoted and been able to do the, the delivery side of things. If you could go back in time and, and speak to your 18-year-old self, what would you say? What advice would you give or what, what would you tell her? I'm such a learner, right? So uh, I'll tell you why I'm thinking about this, sorry. It's because... The reason I'm where I am is because I've had loads of ups and downs, but I've always taken learnings back. So now I don't look at any of that as a problem. I always look at it as a stepping stone or learning. Yeah. But I think if I had to tell my 18-year-old self something, it will always work out. It will always be okay. It always does. That's what I would say. Because in the moment, it feels horrible. Yeah. But with hindsight, it's always okay. And I know that now. So yeah, yeah. I'd tell my 18-year-old, don't worry. It will always work out. Oh, definitely, yeah. Like it's, it's those obstacles that, that make us grow, right? Yeah, always, always. Good stuff, good stuff. Fantastic, thank you very much. That, that, was, that was fantastic. Thanks, thanks for your time, Priya. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the More Than Optics podcast. Make sure you're kept up to date with all our future episodes by following or subscribing to our channel. And don't forget to check us out on social media at More Than Optics. We'll see you next time. 